Hello from Delenia, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the 401 Access Denied podcast, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or a review on your platform of choice, or by emailing us at podcast at delinea.com. From all of us at Delinea, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the 401 Access to Night podcast. I'm the host of the episode, Joe Carson, Chief Security Scientist and Advisory CISO at Delinea. And I'm really excited today to basically bring back a returning guest to the episode. Um, so it's awesome to have Casey on the show today. Um, so I'm going to pass over to Casey to introduce himself. Um, I know you've been on the show before, but uh, for the new audience and new people, I think it'd be good to give a, a bit of background who you are, what you do, and some fun things about yourself. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for having me back on, Joe. It's uh, it's it's been a while, but um, yeah, it's it's been good to be uh, you know catching up at conferences and, and doing all that sort of stuff lately, and you know, getting getting back in to have a chat. So yeah, my name is Casey Ellis. I am the founder and chief strategy officer for Bug Crowd. I'm also the co-founder of the Disclose IO project. Um, really, I think you know. The best description of me is that I basically pioneered uh, this idea of, of crowdsourced security as a service. So, you know, Bugcrowd didn't invent vulnerability disclosure or bug bounty programs. Those were prior art. But this idea of basically building out a platform to connect all of the latent potential that exists in the white hat hacker community with as many problems as we can on the defender side, we were the first to break ground on that. And that's coming up on 11 years ago now. So been at it for quite some time. Um, yeah, it's crazy, right? It's like- That's pretty it, impressive. It feels, <laughs> it feels like a billion years ago and yesterday all at the same time, but it's such a big and kind of complex and frankly, mm -hmm. kind of interesting and fun problem to solve. Um, it actually doesn't seem like that long ago sometimes as well. But um, yeah, on the policy piece uh, with Disclose.io, that's, that's really a, a vulnerability disclosure standardization project. And, and mm -hmm. it, its main goal is to ease the adoption of, of vulnerability disclosure policies for for anyone, right? Like BugCrowd mm -hmm. helps people run these programs. Um, Disclose.io is basically tools that anyone can use regardless of whether they're a customer of BugCrowds or not. And, you know, a big reason for, for, for getting into that is <clears throat> really just to change the operating environment for people to hack in good faith. Like, I think our, our backdrop in all of this is that we've been historically assumed to be criminal. Um, and <laughs> yeah. a lot of but at like least... That, right? When it started, it wasn't. It was curiosity. Now it's now yeah. it's you know the media have made it uh, criminalized. Uh, exactly. Every, every, the, the, everything you see in the media is all about the criminal hackers, not not so much yeah. the good people. <laughs> I think part of the reason for that is that you know bad news travels faster, right? So so you're right. Like hacking started off as a as a morally agnostic thing, you know, back mm -hmm. in the kind of the eighties. But then, you know, got co-opted into being synonymous with, with crime uh, through through the nineties and then forward from there. And really, we're at a point right now where, you know, hackers are, are pretty vital and, you know, I think actually critical yeah. as, as a part of the Internet's immune system. And, and we've had the equivalent of an autoimmune deficiency this entire time. So mm -hmm. a big part of what we're trying to do there is, is just, you know, accelerate adoption of that conversation between builders and breakers. Um, you know, have mm -hmm. companies like get to the point of humility where they say, oh, we're not perfect. Like sometimes things are going to come in from the outside world. Let's actually prepare for that. And in the process, have have an impact on you know laws like the CFAA, like DMCA, mm -hmm. like um, you know the Computer Misuse Act in the UK and other places. Um, yeah, because those, the other those laws, it, you know, those laws are always quite confusing. Uh, I, had, I had a big discussion. One of the one of the great things actually when I when I attended the Bug Crowd uh, party at uh, yeah. Black Hat and Defcon this year. Yeah. Uh, which right. was fantastic because I had a long discussion with the EFF. <laughs> so, um, and that was that was really interesting because one of the things we talked about was the Computer Misuse Act um, and how it's evolving 
we're you know providing a little bit more safety for uh, security researchers and and those who are yeah. breaking things. Uh, where in the past most of it was you had to prove yourself innocent. <laughs> you're all, you're already assumed guilty. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and now exactly. it's got to the point where they have to prove malicious intent, which is which is yep. the right direction. So listening and having exactly. that discussion was was fantastic. So I was really happy to. <laughs> Crowd made that you know facilitated that for me that discussion yeah yeah to, to yeah we're, and i think you know it's it's not it's not just me and it's not just bug crowd it's a it's an army of of you know dozens and i think at this point in time we're up into hundreds or, or there are even thousands of people that are actually putting their hand to the plow to influence policy in the right direction when it comes to uh, security research mm-hmm. um but it's been a long road you know the the the, uh, the charging law changes that the uh, the doj passed down around cfaa in I think it was May of last year, um, mm-hmm. basically just did exactly what you just said. Instead of you know if you've if you've broken into a computer, if you've exceeded authorized access in some way, um, that's not automatically a crime. If you happen to be using that to commit a crime, then yeah, you're in trouble, right? Um, but if you happen it's to be doing proof. that as a part of yeah. good faith security research, then you know the assumption is that you've got good intent and like you have to prove that there's a crime in in, in process actually prosecute mm-hmm. that which and takes it goes back a to, chilling effect away yeah because 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 it really for, for those who are in the security research area it can be quite a you know a, a challenging time when you look back at the journalists who basically found uh what was it the, F, the f11 <laughs> um and, yeah, and ultimately yeah, the f12, f12, f12 yeah. um <laughs> so yep. viewing source of the, the the browser and ultimately then basically you know going through this whole you know public debate uh with the the uh, the politicians in the state um, getting into that scenario is, is quite, you know, quite challenging, and I think it's good here where, where the laws at least, you know, getting into where you had to prove uh, that you know, yeah. you're doing something properly criminal. Yeah, just looking at the source of the web page. And then coming, you know, coming back to Disclose.io, coming back to you know, Buckrad's involvement and in things like the Hacking Policy Council and the Election Security mm-hmm. Research Forum. Like we're a part of all of those as well, and I'm, I'm personally involved in a lot of that stuff. It, it really comes down to driving standardization wherever we can. Mm-hmm where we can kind of provide it, right? Because the other side of this that technologists often overlook is that it's pretty confusing. You know, you've got policymakers that, that are, I believe, most of the time honestly trying to do the right thing, but they're not thinking mm-hmm. about the same things that we are on a day-to-day basis, right? So so the fact that you've got a state law in Missouri that, that makes, you know, F-12, you know, potentially a felony crime at the same time that the, the CFAA is being amended by the Department of Justice, like, yeah, that's a thing that happens. That that, that kind of um, you know disconnect and disunification across different uh, laws is actually not that uncommon. So trying to harmonise that stuff is ultimately a goal as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the, the things in the US is definitely every state has a different law. So even you have to even know uh, you know the specific state laws to make sure you're actually staying tricky. in line with yeah, them. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. So what's so one of the things I want to kind of get what what's some of the big trends that you've seen this year? What's what's some of the big movements towards the direction specifically for vulnerability disclosure? Um, what's some of the let's say you know some of the news headlines? What's some of the things that government you're saying regulations, compliance, and stuff? Where, where's the direction? What's what's the big topics of this year uh, that you've seen? Yeah, look, I, I I think I mean you know just what what we just talked about. So so the uh, the changes in CFAA um, have. have you know, started to be kind of understood. Um, mm-hmm. They were imp- implemented as a charging rule change uh, last year in, in, in May, but you know, I think it, it kind of went under the rug a little bit in terms of, you know, people actually talking about it and understanding the implications mm-hmm. of that. Like really what it does is it, is it changes this default threatening environment for security researchers into one that's default permissive. 
Um, and there's a few things that have to you know happen in order to, act, to actually catch up with that. So there's been definitely a, a, a kind of a groundswell of, of security research, you know, people actually mm -hmm. understanding what the implications of, of a change like that mean, um, both on the defender and the and the you know the white hat hacker side of things. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, moving on to the next piece, it's like all right, how do we you know particularly in North America like harmonize um, as best we can some of the state laws so that there isn't a disconnect between the, the goals that we've been pursuing yeah. at the federal level. Does, does it need to be at the federal level or, or can the states do something, you know, like a standard, you know, like one can, state basically yeah. takes the yeah. precedence, you know, like California Consumer Privacy Act did with GDPR, you know, do we need yeah. to get some state that's going to say, we're going to, we're going to take this forward as, as the baseline? Well, there, there, there are those who, like California actually has, mm -hmm. has done this and there are other states that have as well. Um, the, the thing that's interesting about, you know, North American policy is you've got the 10th Amendment, which is basically states' rights. So, yep. you know, in, in, in these sorts of issues, the Fed can't mandate what the states do, and you end up yep. oftentimes with this kind of weird disconnect between federal mm -hmm. law and state law. Um, so, you know, instead of kind of going top down, often the best thing to do is actually go bottom up and, and do exactly what you just said. If you've got enough precedent, then all of a sudden, you know, the states start to get together and they all decide it's a good idea and, and things start to harmonize behind that. But it's not just had, North America, I, there's, there's yeah, CMA, I, there's, you know, things happening in, in Australia. In the EU as well, Australia's having, you know, every country, Singapore is going down, you know, all the, uh, Japan also have different, you know, paths. And I've seen, I've seen, I've seen this, I tried what, exactly what you're doing. I tried probably about seven years ago with digital identity. Um, I went to the federal level and, you know, was going down this path about, you know, let's get everyone in the U.S. going down, you know, this digitalized identity signature and so forth to make services much easier to interact with the government. Yep. And the federal government said, fantastic, we love it, but we can't do it <laughs> because yep. the states own the identity. Yep. <laughs> and that's what and the right. right. Yep, exactly yep. right. So, and that was the challenge. And then you had to go to deal with every single state individually. And they got yeah. different states going down one path, um, you know, and then other states doing it different, completely something different. And it was always yep. challenging. That got to the point where it got really confusing. It yeah, is. and I, I know you wanted to talk about Disclose.io a bit later, so I'll, I'll come back to kind of the strategy that we, we've used to actually bypass that. Mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, with respect to trends, you know, in, in, in vulnerability disclosure in general, like, basically, I, I can't think of a Western country at this point in time that isn't reviewing mm -hmm. this pretty actively as a part of their kind of top-down policy um, from a crime standpoint, but also integrating it into their kind of national cybersecurity strategies as well. I, th I think we're at this point where at that level, it's pretty well recognized that, like, vulnerabilities happen it's not because mm -hmm. we're stupid or bad or whatever else it's, it's because we're you know, human building <laughs> yeah, we're, like building computer things is kind of hard and we're human and humans make mistakes um so there's there's a maturity i think that comes with um that sort of posture and you know i've been preaching about this for a while like the idea of that tying back into kirchhoff's principle in, in cryptography mm -hmm. like the enemy knows the system right um yeah. if you if you try to maintain a posture of, of security by pretending vulnerabilities don't exist, eventually you're going to get called out and, and whatever, you know, whatever security controls you've got built on top of that thing are going to fall apart at that point in time. So the anti-fragile approach is to accept the fact that you're not perfect, be transparent about that and accept and integrate as much input as you possibly can in, in how yeah. you, you know, do and especially, especially when you think about, you know, uh, a lot of the technology we use today is shared. In many cases, yeah. you know, we've got basically lots of supply chains. You're depending on different hardware vendors, cloud services, and yeah. there's certain things that you can control maybe in your own area. Um, but the moment something like, you know, like, you know, an OS vulnerability comes up or some type of shared code vulnerability comes up, uh, like yeah. Log4J, um, those types yeah. of scenarios, you know, that's, that's something you know, that you have to be prepared for. 
Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And the other part with this one, um, <clears throat> just to just to tap on it quickly, because I, I do think the uh, the topic of election security, um, particularly in North America, but it's a it's a big election year for a lot of Western countries next year. Um, you know, the idea of there there being this convergence between information warfare, disinformation, all those different things, and and security is ultimately kind of the way that we keep the plumbing that gets information safe um, from A to B. Yep. You know, how we how we actually <laughs> keep that safe and secure, right? So. Vulnerable disclosure ties into that as well. It's something that we started working on back in 2018, um, ahead of the 2020 elections here. You know, the idea that you can actually explain uh, what, you know, it, it's like, I'm not gonna be able to, as a poll worker with, with a concerned voter standing in front of me on election day, explain how EDR works or, or what a, you know, what ASLR in, in, a, in a voting machine looks like or any of those different things. But what I can do is explain the concept of neighborhood watch for, for these systems and the fact that there are people that have these skills that are actually trying to help make democracy safer going forward. Yep. Um, and that the manufacturers and, and the states are actually listening to that and integrating that input. Like that's that's a, a tool that you can actually use to in, like increase, it's not a silver bullet, we're not saying everything's secure, but when we're talking about the things that we're trying to do to make the process more transparent and more so, secure, it's actually a really effective tool. For yeah, so interesting in that. So interesting in that topic, one of the things uh, when I was recently in Singapore, I was there for Singapore International Cyber Week and we had GovWare and all those. Um, and one of the biggest topics was around, uh, and this comes back to some of the uh, EU regulation laws that's coming in play and yep. also laws that's coming out um, across uh, Singapore, Japan, other countries, which is around the labeling, you know, security labeling and stuff like that. Um, yeah. I wonder what your opinion is, you know, should organizations look, not, not just about here's the security updates and here's, you know, the security process. It's interesting that, you know, should vulnerability disclosure also be tied into labeling and classification as well, because that's an interesting area. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm biased on this one. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky one because obviously, you know, <laughs> vulnerability disclosure programs and, and the ability to run those and, and have those be efficient for organizations, mm -hmm. that is a product that Buckrat says. So, you know, I'll disclose an inherent kind of conflict of interest there. But mm -hmm. I do genuinely believe that, um, you know, the, the idea of, of that transparency and that kind of anti-fragility I was talking about before, it is a proxy indicator of security maturity within yep. an organization. And again, what we're not saying is everything's perfectly fine, but if you're looking for markers from the outside in that an organization is you know, doing its best basically to, to stay on top of security and keep its users safe, then it's a pretty good, you know, pretty easy thing to find mm -hmm. for starters. But also I think it's a pretty um, you know, proactive, still at the point, we're still at a point of adoption where the folks that are doing that are, are quite proactive in their, their approach to security. So seeing that sort of feed into things like rating systems and, and you know, we've, we've seen, uh, you know, the presence or absence of a, of a VDP or a bug bounty program used as a cyber risk, um, mm -hmm. you know, in, indicator for insurance companies. Yeah, um, we've seen it sort of pop up in different places like that. It's it's logical. That's really interesting is, uh, you know, I recently did a big talk in cyber insurance. And one thing is I'm seeing is absolutely cyber insurance is starting to have a lot more, you know, requirements for organizations because, you know, they've been at a loss for many years. They're looking to make yeah. sure that they minimize and they're, and they're getting to the point where they're starting. I would say this is the year of cyber insurance maturity, where the yeah. insurers are starting to better understand risk quantification when it comes to cyber attacks and cyber incidents. Yeah, they've, 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 and been, they've been 
buying buying data for long enough now, it's it's about time they turn it into an actual business. I think. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I think, I think we've had enough incidents over the last like five years that you know there's enough data there. Probably uh, even more data than what they've collected over natural disasters over the entire lifetime of the insurance industry. I think I think we've had enough cyber right, incidents yeah. to kind of you know to to exceed that, and to the point where they're now having that better quantification. And I think they're really starting to realize what risk is when it comes to cyber and how to better reduce it. And I see a lot yeah. of things where compliance is becoming mandatory uh, and definitely, you know, what, what security programs are doing, whether it being security awareness training, whether it being, you know, their pets management program and vulnerability disclosure is all part of that. So it's, it's really yeah. showing, to your point, is that these organizations that really take these different strategies to top priority is they're doing the right things to reduce the risk. And this brings it well, and, to a side and, topic. And, 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 and that, just, just, just on that real quick, um, and that they're selecting, um, they're not making it fragile because the, 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 like I've been involved in, in a lot of the, uh, the different kind of conversations around labeling through policy council mm -hmm. and different things like that. And the tendency is always to try to make it very technical and very kind of brittle as a result. Mm -hmm. Like you need to do this thing, that thing, the other thing. And like the technical controls that might not necessarily be relevant to every organization that gets that label. Mm -hmm. And also like, you know, fast forward three years, like maybe the internet's changed a fair bit by that point, right? So the, the whole idea of going back to these kind of core fundamentals, you know, um, security, like security awareness training within your organization, mm -hmm. secure code training, things like vulnerability disclosure. So if you get it, if, if there is an issue, like you've got the ability to receive that input from the outside world, these kind of core design feeders, mm -hmm. um, I think I'm seeing a lot of folk kind of reorient around just having those as the core principles and trying to build mm -hmm. from that instead of the other way around, which which is good. Like I think that's that's ultimately our choice. Absolutely, because because at the same time you want to make sure that you're actually focusing on the business value, and yeah. you, you know it's a business strategy. Exactly. It ultimately, it's a business strategy at the end of the day uh, to you know reduce to make the business more resilient, to make the business you know, the business uh, reduce on the risk. So ultimately, it all has to tie tie back to the business outcomes. And this gets into that's one right. of the interesting side topics: the, the recent news around the Solar Winds uh, CISO. Um, mm. who's now being sued by the SEC. Um, of course, I, I guess the whole reason is falsely misrepresenting their security capabilities or posture. <laughs> uh, what's your thoughts and opinion around that? Because it, you know, it, it's sent a bit of shockwaves around the world in regards when it comes to, um, you know, I guess, you know, we've been pushing for CISOs to be more, you know, represented at the board level. Um, is this exposing them a bit more as a result of that, that push? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the 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 thing that's a, a little quirky about, I guess, my point of view on that is, is having you know, worked in, in cybersecurity and having been, you know, a board member and a chair um, for, for the past, you know, 10, 10 11 years through Bug Crowd. Um, I, I can understand through the lens of, of like board liability and, and the risk associated with that, as well as like the, frankly, the challenges of trying to run uh, an effective security program. Like it, it's... Yeah, the the thing that's um, there's an increasing like we've got a couple we've got a trend starting to form here. Like you've got you've got Joe Sullivan uh, with with the stuff yep. that happened with Uber. You've got now this this whole thing with SolarWinds, and there's other other cases mm -hmm. that are kind of bubbling away in the background. So it's very clear that um, yeah, this issue of liability. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we are in the boardroom now, right? Which means yep. okay, which, which, which means your 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 signature means a lot when you sign something. Yeah, and I think yeah, it's like I think this comes down to talk to big boy pants, right? Yes, and it comes down to I've, I've been in situations where I will not sign anything until I have a basically very clear understanding yeah. about what I'm signing, um, especially when you're at that level. Uh, and is, yeah. is this a case where maybe the CISOs aren't, you know, maybe 
aren't yet really understanding accountability at that level? Um, or, or is it something that, you know, maybe that, uh, you know, they're being pressured uh, to, to make sure that they're focusing on, on, on getting things done and moving forward? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I because you know I, I will caveat this and say that I've not dove like all the way into into the specifics of the solo and stuff yet. So I'm, I'm speaking in general terms here. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I tend to think it's a it's um, it actually goes in both directions. I think for for CISOs and for security leaders, like we're not used to being accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, at, like kind of the extent of our accountability to the business is whether or not we get yep. breached, right? Um, yep. Yes or no, and it, until it happens, you know the, that accountability is a fairly mm-hmm. loose coupling because the board historically hasn't really understood what the hell we actually do. Um, There's been very right. few boards so, that actually have very well educated security yeah. professionals on the board. Yes, yeah, so there's there's this, there's <laughs> this impedance yeah. between our language and theirs, and I think you know really the part that we're going through right now is is kind of a journey of understanding in both directions. Like you look at the uh, the SEC proposed rule changes that came out last year where it's basically you have to provide um, kind of enumeration of the cybersecurity expertise that you've got on your board for publicly listed companies. That's mm-hmm. that's the SEC trying to basically get us out of the, the nerd corner and, and, and put us like square in the middle of like just normal risk management and governance, which is what a board does. So, right. you know, it, we're in kind of a bumpy I think, season. I think we're, I think we're about, right now, I think. to your point, it's a bit of a translation issue as well, because sometimes yeah. I find, you know, as I've been looking through, for example, recently in the cyber insurance industry, I find the same things is that the language that we speak in security, the language that is spoken at the board and in cyber insurance are not, not the same, same. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is which gets confusing because you might be talking about one thing and assuming making yep. that assumption, but to the other person on the other side, it means something completely different. Um, you know, one one, one, yeah. one big example was uh, at the security level when we talk about data backup recovery, we're thinking about you know recovering from a, a, a good no one backup. Um, but sometimes in the insurance industry, that translates into paying the ransom <laughs> and getting the key back to recover yeah. the data because they see that still yeah. as a as a legitimate recovery operation as well. Uh, so just making yeah, sure they're always on the same same page. One hundred percent. Well, I, I do I do think. Um... Yeah, so so there's there's that in terms of the you know the impedance mismatch and the different kind of mm-hmm. priorities and languages being used and all that kind of thing. I, I do foresee, um, you know, when you look at some of the um, kind of the lean of, of policy making legislation that's that's you know been the trend over the past twelve to eighteen months. It's very very focused on the user, mm-hmm. and and the thing that's best for the security for the user is not always necessarily aligned with the thing that's best for the security like financially of the shareholder. Yep. So okay, like when there's when there's any kind of divergence on that level, like that's going to be a pretty interesting thing to try to reconcile as as we go forward. And you know, I think for the short term, the shareholder is going to win out because they're paying the bills, and that's kind of how you know, capitalism yeah, works, it's, right? It's, it's the business. But, it's the business decision yeah. ultimately. But, so. at, but at the same, but at the same time, you know, the U.S. is is trying to trying to understand and try to figure out different ways to roll out you know privacy legislation mm-hmm. um, in a way that is is kind of reflective of, of CCPA in California at the state level and, and some of the stuff in the EU, right? That's going to force that conversation and, and force kind of a point of convergence. So it's a really interesting time to be a CISO. Like you, you, you kind of asked for my like just general hot take. Um, you know, there's a lot of conversation around, uh, you know, E&O insurance, um, you know, actually viewing, you know, the the, the liability of, of being in that position um, in a different way way and, and i've actually seen you know way. even the fact that we just haven't really you know been doing that much up until this point interesting is it you know to that point yeah, I, was, I was at a ci uh, CISO summit just a few weeks ago even prior to all of the solar winds you know happening 
And the big topic of the discussion was about, you know, CISO liability and personal, are they taking out insurance for themselves to cover themselves from personal liability? And that was a big topic. Yeah. So it was really interesting. Yeah. Another, another area I want to get into as well is, you know, big topics been over the last couple of years. And this is also something that I've seen numerous times. There was a great talk earlier this year at uh, B-Side San Francisco around software building materials yes. and, and vulnerability disclosure. What's, what's your view around, because ultimately, you know, we're in the supply chain. And, you know, and this, again, gets into where, you know, company A has a, a vulnerability, how much do they get into disclosing that further down into their supply chains that, that ultimately get impacted, you know, and, and what's what's happening in that space around the SBOMs and, and vulnerability disclosure? Yeah, yeah, look, I think, I think, you know, I mean, speaking of SolarWinds, like as a, as an attack, um, SolarWinds was, you know, kind of an education process for, for people outside of security that the internet is literally built on a gigantic stack of turtles. Um, and, and, and we've got dependencies all the way down, right? Like, and that, and that can be a vendor like, like SolarWinds in that case, or it can be, you know, open source libraries. It can be all those different things. Like the, the stuff that we, we interact with on a daily basis is so incredibly complex in how it's been assembled at this point in time. You know, you've got to think about like what are those components like where does liability exist for for remediation like if something goes wrong coming back to the last question that's i think starting to come into the mix as well um and you know so there was this uh, this kind of presidential eo around the creation of s-bombs um which by the way was i know there was some you know different opinions <laughs> around all of that but like i've watched alan friedman uh, in particular, yeah, I mean, I'm uh, just, I'm just watching, so, I'm just seeing his Italian vacation pictures on his bicycle, so yeah, which is yeah. also cool. Yeah, uh, like but, Josh, Josh, Josh Corman, Bo Woods, like yeah. Kate, like there's, there's been a bunch of people that have been really pushing this forward. I think you know, Alan, Alan's kind of the face of it, and I've, I've watched right, him yeah. annoy everyone talking about S bomb <laughs> for the better part of ten years now, and all of a sudden he's living his best life because that is legitimately a problem that we need to solve. So that part I think is really good. The uh, the downside of it is that no one really knows what to do with an S bomb yet. Um, we've, we've all got the ability to generate them and we've got different mandates that actually require that now, but cool. Like now I've got a phone book sitting on my desk. Like, what do I do with it? What, How do I actually do operationalize that? So, yeah. So it's interesting. It's interesting we talk about it because one of the, this is a big lesson I learned. And I think that we're going to go down the same process that I had at least 15 years ago when I had this discussion. I went in, you know, back 15 years ago, I was talking about software-defined networks. And I went into this during government. I was like, oh, you know, this is the greatest thing. We have to talk about software-defined networks. And I, I feel it's very the similar thing that we're going to do with the SBOM as well, is that we're, 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 we're kind of focusing on software and all of the kind of components mm. that builds into it. And one of the things in Estonia, when, when I, the government came back and said, no, we don't do that software-defined networks. We do services. And I was like, huh, okay. Right. That makes more sense. And, it, and what they, rather than looking at it from a software perspective, they said, what does all this together make as a service? And what's all the components? Yeah, not just not just the software, but it's the hardware. It's the people. It's the process. It's the the mm. data hosting. It's the communication, and ultimately that defines the service. And therefore, then they go through that and do vulnerability <clears throat> risk assessments and so forth. And I, I kind of yeah. feel that you know we're that we're, we're done the same path that we did with S software defined networks and with S bombs and and ultimately you, ultimately what what is it you're providing? What what is I think, what is the I, end product? I think that's right. I think you know, it, like we we had we definitely had a kind of a crash course in, in a similar sort of thing when we started work, working a lot with the automotive industry back in 2015. Um, yeah, it's, it's exactly a very comparison industry. That yeah, it's the same. Yeah, yeah it's it's like uh, car manufacturers don't actually kind of originate as an OEM, like mm -hmm. that many products that end up forming the thing that they go off and sell on 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 the showroom floor, right? So like, okay, what's the chain of responsibility there? How do you 
how do you secure all of that when you've got such a deep supply chain? Are there opportunities for cross-pollination between the different OEMs, like all that kind of stuff? I think those same principles apply to, to you know, ultimately how we'll end up like solving some of this supply chain stuff. Um, but as it relates the, to, to even, to even the airline industry also is a very good example of, of similar. There's, there's, there's a similar, ton of yeah. like ag yeah. yeah, agriculture, like ICS, pretty yeah. much the older and more physical an industry is, the more it has mm -hmm. this particular challenge from a yeah. from a from a supply standpoint. But um, yeah, software is no exception to that because we've been around doing this for a long time now, and we've, we're mm -hmm. kind of following similar patterns. I think so. Yeah, I think uh, from from a vulnerable disclosure and from a security research standpoint, it's it's definitely you know I, I keep on coming back to the idea of like how do we operationalize the insight that an S bomb could give us, um, and there's vendors doing that like the ASPM space is is pretty good at that you know like Apiro legit like different different mm -hmm. kind of platforms to do that part, but what I've seen from a security research standpoint is is folk actually starting to think through that lens so the, when they're attacking a particular thing as a white hat, they're not just thinking about, you know, the code that's sitting on the surface of, of the target. They're thinking about all of the manufacturers that have fed up into it. Are there other, other points of insertion, other kind of, you know, consistent anti-patterns that could potentially come up and create a vulnerability that might not be intuitive, mm -hmm. like all those different things. And you start to get a risk-based view. Like ultimately, yeah. you know, to me, that's what SBOMs are probably going to end up being most useful for is, is actually kind of making risk sexy again in some ways. Saying okay, we've got all of this stuff that we can go off and fix. How are we going to prioritize that? Let's actually stack rank the risk priority, and, and then in, in the end, is about how is that going to be used in real life versus you know when you get company. You know, so yeah. when you get companies that say you know I can't reproduce it, <laughs> you're going ah, yeah. because and, you're and not me, basically a, using it in, in the way it's basically going to be used by the end user. Hundred so. percent, and and to me that's a that's that is a you know there's there's science and there's math that can be brought into that but i think at the end of the day it is a fairly creative process that does require the an attacker mindset to resolve the questions so this idea of security research as being a part of what feeds you know the outcome um, that, that allows that i'm starting to see things move in that direction and i think that's probably going to continue that's fantastic so let's let's sway, sway back into the you know and, and disclose io and, and kind of the whole concept behind it because i definitely sure. what's great is that yes when you look at different vulnerability programs and the different, you know, uh, types and, 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 and consistency and getting a proper classification, what, what, what was the whole idea behind Disclose IO? Um, I can tell us a little bit more about detail, kind of into what was what 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 was the kind of when you when you find it, um, and then also you know yeah. the great uh, uh, discussion, the great uh, uh, talk that was done at uh, Besides San Francisco this year on it. It's fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah, no, definitely. That was that was. It was an eye opener for me because it wasn't something I. I, I knew it was happening over here, but it really opened my eyes into the challenges and you know what, what needed to be done. Yeah, I mean that 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 talk it was funny because I was sitting I was sitting with a, a couple of folk um, that you know I've been working with in the space and, and, and around Disclosure for, for a long time now, um, and like frankly I I hadn't really been worded up on on what the talk was going to be about. I'm I'm sort of sitting there borderline tearing up. Uh, and they're all like, "Oh my God, we were part of this." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm changing." And it's cool. Like, I think, I think the um, you know, there's so much more work to do in this space that's very easy just to look at that part. It's like, okay, the magnitude of the problem that we're trying to solve here is is huge. And you know, I think as as hackers, we mostly tend to see the broken stuff. So to actually stop yeah. and pause and look back on what's changed over the past ten years, that that was very cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, the the origin of it really was was. Um, Kind of early on in, in, in bug bounty and vulnerable disclosure in, in a bug crowd context, we realized that some you know, lawyers don't know how to write 
uh, they haven't, <laughs> and it's not because lawyers are dumb. It's because they just haven't thought about this before, right? Like they, they hadn't thought about, you know, how do you write a policy that allows at that point in time, someone that they consider to be probably malicious um, because the idea of like good faith hacking that sort of didn't really exist in, in the popular mindset 10 years ago. It does now, but it didn't then. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you get them to write a policy that, that um, you know, in, encourages and accepts the input of people that are operating in good faith, but also doesn't, you know, give carte blanche to, to bad actors in the process, right? So that was a, a real tripping hazard for, for lawyers. And, you know, a nervous lawyer tends to be pretty verbose. So you'd end up with like war and peace that tried to figure out every edge <laughs> you get case. The terms, of, terms of services and the EULAs and the yeah. all, it just, yeah. it just gets and, so and, enormous that the, well, you can't do and, anything with it. <laughs> and, and and honestly, like they're tr- I don't fault them for that. They're trying to do their job and, and be as thorough as possible. But the, the other side of that problem is that you've got security researchers that aren't lawyers um, that, you know, oftentimes are, are English as a second language, for example, um, and who are probably, you know, like some of them do go through and like try to fully digest and understand this stuff so that they know they're not breaking the law or doing the wrong thing and from a, from a corporate or a criminal standpoint. Uh, but most of them don't. So, like, how do you simplify that and collapse it in a way that makes it easier for both sides to understand and ingest with the ultimate goal of, of you know, reducing risk for the hacker side of the house but also to improve the speed of adoption uh, on, on the defender side. So that's kind of how it got started. And, um, yeah, we, we put together with uh, a, a law firm called Cypher Law back in the day, a, a, a version, like a boilerplate piece of this. Uh, and then Amit started working on a legal bug bounty through UC Berkeley. Um, and that was kind of when we connected up and like we should join forces on this and actually create it, a, its own thing that becomes almost like this lightning rod for, for innovation. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, really it's, it's the idea of, you know, just what I said before, like how do we make the environment safer for people that are hacking in good faith so we can reduce the chilling effect on their work? And then on the defender side, how do we, how do we make this as easy to adopt as possible um, in the form of the language itself, but then tooling around it as well? You know, all those different things. We've got a policy maker now where people can literally just go and plug stuff in and it'll populate it. They can drag and drop it onto their website if they want to, or they can hand it off to their legal team if they're a larger company and, and, and go through those processes. Because you know, making it more flexible, it. absolutely. It makes it more flexible yeah. for those who are, because I always go back to is the majority of, of hackers in the world are, are, are here to make the world a safer place. And, you know, the, the, the criminals don't read dealers in terms of services and they don't, well, if they do, they don't. They don't follow them, right? Like, exactly. Kind of... So, um, so who, who are those really intended for? You know, and, and, and what's yeah. the purpose? And how do we make sure yeah. that ultimately the companies are not abusing it in regards to you know yeah. when, when ultimately they're getting they're getting something in return. Uh, they're they're yeah. getting information about a problem that you know could be used maliciously by by a criminal. Uh, so I think it's really important to make like, sure. Like, like the other, the other, is, the other piece. Yeah, exactly. The the other piece of that as well is is you know the adoption side is really important because you know really the the goal and this is going back to what we we're talking about earlier with like state laws kind of eventually gaining precedent and rolling up into federal laws. Um, if you're having trouble with that part, then go another layer down to the constituents of, of that state and just populate populate the, the the commerce population with a particular approach and a particular set of language ultimately what that does is builds up momentum and establishes precedent. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, that was one of the big tools that we used for, for um, you know, DOJ have been fantastic and I'd, I'd give them all the credit where the credit's due, but in terms of prodding them in that direction, like that was one of the big tools that we used because, 
you've got, you know, whatever it is at this point in time, you know, tens of thousands of people using this policy. And then you've got, you know, AWS um, adopting it and, and starting to give input from their legal team. You've that's, got OpenAI. That's fantastic, because that was always it a, on. You've got, you know, but cloud providers, that was always yeah. a challenge. Cloud providers, yeah. that was always the big one. Because yeah. ultimately, if you're doing, even, even not just bug bounties and so forth, that's, you know, if you're doing vulnerability uh, or pen testing or any type of thing, um, and you're doing it against shared services, that was always the biggest, that was scary. I was I was kind of, yeah. I avoided those like the plague. So I was like, I'm not going down there. <laughs> if you don't own yeah, it yeah, and yeah. you're renting it, it's, it's, it's a bad exactly. idea. <laughs> and, you, and you've got to be able to establish what the rules of the road are and, and have yeah. those things be clear. So like that's that's what it's been. And, and it's mm-hmm. like, it's separate from bug crowd in the sense that it's an open source project. We're actually in the process of, of establishing 501c3 and want to do a lot more with it going forward. Um, but the relationship to bug crowd, you know, obviously is that like this sort of came from problems that we were thinking about and trying to solve within bug crowd that others were as well. And, you know, for, for from a commercial standpoint, it kind of clears the snow off the road. Like the, the, the easier it is to have a conversation with a company about hackers actually being useful and not always harmful. Like that makes it easier for bug crowd as a company to position what we do as a platform from a service standpoint. So I, the whole I, thing kind I of works together, if that makes sense. It starts, it starts giving you clear visibility because one is, you know, going down and, and, and doing bug bounties is one thing, but then making yep. sure organizations who uh, make it easier for you to work with them yep. uh, and yep. more transparency about not only do we have a bug bounty, but actually we went down the process of making sure that the policies and all the terms and everything makes you not being criminalized at the same time. Um, yep. And I think yep. that, that just gives you much more, let's say, you know, uh, protection uh, at the end, you know, it gives you that, yeah. that comfort that you're, yeah. you're getting all the bases covered. Yeah, we were setting which, out which the Which gets into the safe, the safe harbor discussion as yeah, well. Which is the exactly. Point. And that, that was the big piece, the idea of adoption, but then adoption with safe harbor to make sure that, that that safe harbor actually works in both directions. So the hacker feels comfortable, but also going back to where we started, the, the company feels comfortable putting this policy mm-hmm. out there, knowing that there is still this concept of, of a criminal that they can they can lawyer up on if they feel like they should, right? Because there is, like there's times when that's the appropriate thing to do. So it's not just everything's YOLO now. It's, you know, how do you find that mid ground where everyone feels safe? What's that going to back to that malicious that. intent part that we kind of covered at the beginning? The, the great conversation that I had with the EFF, which was also, I was so happy to hear, you know, their, you know, uh, the legal terms that kind of, they said, you know, that's uh, what was being covered. I want to shift gears a little bit into, you know, sure. the big movement that's been happening is around the whole secure by design uh, discussion. Of course, that's where, you know, bug bounties always tend to be at the end. It's it's publicly released software. It's out there. Everyone's got it. Um, and we see this whole shift left movement. Uh, I, I prefer to be secured by default is that you know, not just by design, but actually having it turned on, enabled and being used. And that it's, it's, you know, not assuming as you go through and you click through all the defaults and eventually at the end, security is not turned on and enabled. I wanted to get to the point where it's the, it's the you know, you had to purposely change the security to turn it on. Um, yep. You have to go through the exception. Uh, but going back to that security by design and the whole shift left kind of, where, where's bug bounties fitting into that? Are you starting to see it being more earlier in the design phase of, of software? Yeah, so there's, there's probably two parts to that that I'd, I'll speak to you real quick. Um, you know, what we are seeing is is crowdsourcing so so when people hear the term bug bounty most often they think about like a public program where it's hey internet come at me and i'll pay you right that doesn't fit with shift left because shift left by nature is pre-production um but you've got the ability you've got the ability um and this is something that we've you know been doing since day one to to basically you know carve out trusted 
subsets of the community um, and, and mm -hmm. deploy them into testing and provide security feedback in a pre-production way. Um, that's, you know, it's it's funny because it's not necessarily a thing that we're known for because the whole kind of public bug bounty thing is so noisy, mm -hmm. so it sort of drowns out the rest of what we do. Um, but it's a pretty common use case, frankly, for, for, the, for the platform. And, yeah, we're seeing more of that. Um, you know, the idea of actually getting code into the hands of security researchers and saying, hey, like, have at it. You know, you've signed a non-disclosure agreement. We've got our we've got our intellectual property button down, all those different things. So as a, as a customer, I'm okay with doing that. And what BugCrowd does is figure it figures out, like, who are the right people to actually offer that to in the first place from a trust standpoint. Um, that's that's definitely increasing. Um, and I think, you know, that, that, that works. I mean, we've partnered with Secure Code Warrior, for example, for, for a lot of years now in terms of, yeah, okay, what we learn from that process, what can we then inform from a secure development training standpoint to, to try to address some of these issues at the root cause instead of catching them after they've already become a vulnerability. So there's there's that. I think with Secure by Design, like the CISA stuff that came out, I know a bunch of the folk that actually worked on that. And um, you know, much, much is now leading it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, much much is in the mix. Um, yeah, Jack Jack Cable and, and just you know, mm -hmm. cast of heroes that, that that have worked on this stuff for a long time have, have actually contributed to that document. And one of the key things that it calls out is, is transparency, um, which I actually think has a pretty profound impact on design in a way that's not necessarily that intuitive. If, if you're building something knowing that um, there's going to be transparency around security of that thing in the future mm -hmm. then you think about resilience in a different way um, which which to me fundamentally affects you know some of the design choices that you're going to make including which defaults you select from from a ux and a, and a yep. usability yep. standpoint to your, what, to your what you turn on what so, you don't because sometimes that yeah people are afraid when you're going down that security you know design process you're afraid of adoption and usability issues and sometimes that's why they're always turned off you know, so let's, let's not give them additional things that they need to get to you know whether it's usable um, but we need to make sure that we incorporate kind of that into design as well. So making secure, yeah, no, e sure. easy, easy, and seamless at the end. So, yeah, for sure. Uh, I think the, like the, 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 the biggest piece there is that you know the, the way I see, I, I look at this because we're talking about vulnerable disclosure, we're talking about bounty, we're talking about pre-production, you know, crowdsourcing and multi-sourcing. There's all different ways to plug hackers into helping solve this particular mm -hmm. problem. You know, the, the overarching thing I think really comes down to like build a break of feedback, right? You've got you've got builders and you've got even before that designers that are trying to get the damn thing to work in the first place. Like that's mm -hmm. their main job, right? So, it, you know, if they're not security experts in the process, they can't really be blamed for overlooking some of the things that need to be factored mm -hmm. in because their problem is to actually make it work in the first place. Yep. But then you've got the, and, the breakers and, and on speed. the other side who <laughs> take that thing, yeah, and do it quickly, right? Then you get the breakers on the other side whose first, you know, their first instinct is to take that thing, tip it upside down, see what falls out. Um, yeah, the more that those two groups can can basically cross-pollinate their thinking, um, you know, and, and the earlier in the process that can happen, I think the better. Because ultimately it makes its way down into design and that's when the real stuff starts to change, I think. It always reminds me, when I always have this discussion, it reminds me, you know, back in university when I was doing uh, COBOL programming, and I, you know, I, I was, you know, at the end of uh, you know a semester, and I was always excited. I, I got my COBOL program working; it was fantastic, and everything you typed in, it did all of the processes and all the work. And I was, you know, when I demoed it to to the to lecture, you know, she came up, she's like, oh, you know, fantastic. And then what she did with her hands on the keyboard, she just went, and the program just crashed. <laughs> she just came tumbling down. She just basically just put her hand on all the keys, just rubbed it, and my thing just like crashed. And that was a big realization is that, yeah, you know, making sure you do a lot of validation 
and, yeah. and, uh, or, and and even and even consider the fact that people are going to do weird stuff with your with your app yeah. like, like unintended you know they don't use it as as you expected yeah. when we do we do we do a bunch of hardware hacking events and, and they're oftentimes in person like if it's a if it's a prototype or, or whatever else um, i did one recently around you know voting equipment mm -hmm. um, at the election security research forum and and that was no exception to, to other you know hardware things like you've mm -hmm. got these product designers and these people that have worked on building this thing watching hackers come in and do the most bizarre stuff to, to, it's, to their it's, baby. It's, 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 it's like, it's it like is, how the hell, for me, how, how the hell would you think about that? Like, why, why would you do that? I'm like, exactly. That's, that's what, that's what an adversary is going to do. And that's frankly, probably what some of your users are going to do. And that's what well. I, I loved about, you know, the why recent, yeah, the recent episode I did with sick codes and we talked about the John Deere tractor and playing, uh, Doom on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, Fascinating. I, I, I making the, things I, unintended. <laughs> so. I had the pleasure of working with Sick on some of the uh, some of yeah. the disclosure aspects of that, and just you know, he's a he's a great storyteller as well, which I think helps kind of explain what all's going on in the background. There. <laughs> so, and it got me one, one of the things: the whole secure by design kind of concept got me thinking about you know, do we need to have start having the discussion around security warranties? We have we have product warranties, uh, you know, which is is one one thing which is getting more consistency. Uh, but you know, getting into security warranties is how long are you going to secure me for when I use these products? Uh, so it got me well, once, and, you know. And, 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 even, and even what is the, the definition of secure? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Like, how do you actually define that? Because a warranty either gets paid out or it doesn't. So you need a bright line between secure and insecure. And Absolutely. those lines are pretty hard to draw. So, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done on that side, you know, product liability and the warranty piece that's come out with some of the guidance. Um, you know, I, I was a part of uh, the um, the ONCD National Cybersecurity mm -hmm. Strategy creation, which is where this kind of came from. Um, and I'm a huge advocate of that idea. Um, I think the implementation of it is going to be really kind of long-winded and difficult to get yeah, right. Well I think it's a, as a directional thing, I think it's the right way to pull. If that makes sense. I, I agree. I think it's something that it's the path we need to go on, but it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a lot of hop, uphill. Maybe a bit of a windy and, one, yeah. And a windy <laughs> one, and maybe a few, few back, but you know, rolling back down the hill as well. Um, yep. Probably, probably a bit like Aris Roads, to be honest. Um, and next, it gets me into one of the big topics that's been around, you know, and the trend is is you know, generative AI and artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence. However, yep. we defined it. I, could, I just call it a batch job, to be honest, or a schedule task. Nested statements. It's actually, I mean, it's it's gone it's gone beyond that now quite a bit um but yeah it, it has uh, it has advanced i i, I do agree yeah. I, it's it's got a little bit more intelligent uh, for sure um but what what's happening around that when it comes to vulnerability disclosure side of things is, is, is you're seeing it being much more used in the vulnerability disclosure area and maybe what's what's a bit of the future do you see uh with as more kind of let's say uh data scientists and analysts and gender of ai yeah uh, developers can, yeah yeah can for sure. get their hands on it for sure. I mean, probably three prongs to that one. One is is um, <clears throat> kind of the use of, of generative AI by people doing offensive security research, and there's a ton of that stuff going on. Um, you know, on the bad guy side, one of the things that's popped out is the uh, the time between a patch being dropped out um, in response to a CVE and an exploit showing up on the internet that actually abuses um, unpatched systems. Like that's shortened a ton it, over the past nine months. <laughs> that and what's that? That's LLMs that are doing that because they're they're very good at that type of thing. So, yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, probably the second part is is the relationship between LLMs, in particular, generative AI and like traditional AppSec and infrastructure security. Because um, ultimately, what you end up with is this kind of untrusted user right in the middle of everything. 
Yeah. Uh, so, so the <laughs> so the architectural side of things is is you know pretty um, pretty wild and, and woolly. Frankly, I was just at the uh, the OWASP Global AppSec Conference, and we'll talk oh, a lot and D- around. Oh, in DC was it? Or that was yeah. yeah. Yeah, like what's the top ten look like here, and how do we think about the relationship between this like new and kind of different thing in terms of how it behaves and these kind of traditionally static um, parameters that we put around security mm-hmm. when it comes to AppSec and infrastructure sec and all that kind of stuff. So that's that's a work in progress, but probably the big one, uh, which you were kind of hinting at in the question there, is is actually you know security of the the LLMs themselves. Um, so you know how how are we thinking about prompt injection? How are we thinking about hallucinations? How are we thinking about bias? Um, you know, what are, what are the different categories of risk and issue that we can we can start to zone in on um, to enable secure by design, kind of harking back to the last topic in this area, because it's moving very, very quickly um, and it's incredibly powerful. So, so this idea of like that being a pretty important question to get some answers to at this point in history, there's a lot of work going into that. You can see that in the Biden EO. You know, there's a lot of stuff yeah, in there around bias. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's a lot of things around, you know, safety and privacy and, and kind of the downstream you know, human and potential societal impacts of, of AI. Um, at the same time, it's like, yeah, let's like take advantage of this stuff because it's competitive and it's useful, but also it's like very powerful. Yeah, I, I almost view AI as a like great power level um, shift in, in, in technology. If you sort of play acceleration, it, it gives it gives a lot of non-technical people powerful skills that they've never had. Yeah, and, and it's and it's powerful in and of itself. So, you know, I think what we've seen, um, you know, we started working with OpenAI like 12 months ago. We, we actually started getting involved in this type of thing from a testing standpoint back in 2018 um, mm-hmm. with, with, you know, social media networks yeah. and, and kind of the, you know, role it, of yeah, A lot of those algorithms were, were, were in the social media area. That came with. Yeah, that's, that's right. You know, that that's was right. what was behind the scenes. It was, you know, literally that's where, the, you know, they, they were leveraging. Yeah, yeah, but the nice thing that uh, that you know ChatGPT did was it kind of just dumped on on the collective consciousness of the internet. Like, this is what we mean when we say AI, um, and that's yeah, that's good and bad. I think the, the misinterpretation and the freaking out about that, you know, some of it's productive, some of it isn't. But like everyone's engaging with this as a real thing now, and I, I think the fact that that wasn't really true prior to that is is a really good thing. So you know, generative the generative AI red teaming uh, village um, at uh, DefCon this year were involved in, in helping mm-hmm. actually create the um, the kind of the rubric and, and the, uh, the the approach to testing there. Um, you know, working with OpenAI and other other kind of fundamental model vendors and, and some of the different things that are popping up around it. Probably the biggest thing is is that like this is moving so freaking fast. Um, that's uh, it's, 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 it's getting to the point where the amount of focus and effort and you know, engineering and development time that's been spent on this right now exceeds everything else. It's just, you know, it's accelerating beyond what we've seen, you know, in, in, in any yeah. area in, in decades. Yeah, and, and my my spidey senses go off whenever that happens because, you know, generally the, the size of the oh shit moment um, a new technology has from a security standpoint is proportional to how quickly it hits the market, right? Like you think about IoT, like, like all of a sudden there's IoT everywhere and then all of a sudden we realize, whoops, we forgot to do a bunch of really you know, rudimentary security stuff in that space and all of a sudden you've got Mirai taking you know, half of America offline. Um, there's, yeah, I, I think there's like speed is the natural enemy of security when it comes to design and I do know there's a lot of really good work going into trying to do this properly and, and you know, they are, to their credit, 
soliciting a lot of input from from hackers and from people that think like we do. I, I think I think what they've them, they've seen yeah. is they've they've learned their lessons from what they've seen in the past. And they want to make sure yeah. they're you know they're they're doing it right as they as they continue forward. Yeah, just that is that is a hot tip yeah. on you know for yeah. for because for, for, yeah, it's it's going to be relevant. It's mm -hmm. one of these things where it's like you like it's important to at least understand what's going on in this space because it's not going to slow down and it's going to become relevant whether you kind of like it or not and i think it, it's people that it, are intrigued it's the point where begin. when you take when you take autonomous and you put ai together and that's where i get really like well yeah. things start you know you, you take autonomous where you know it allows you to go and do something in an automated way whether it being you know logistics and transportation cars for example then yeah. you give it uh, a, a self-learning algorithm in the background <laughs> which trains it um, you want to make sure that that training can't be <laughs> can't be manipulated. <laughs> you want to, well, you want to make sure you design it properly because you think about um, you know some of the conversation around machine learning, uh, you know, social media and disinformation. Like ultimately, the ML figured out that tribalism is a pretty good way to get people to click on an ad. Yep. Right. So like it was actually the supervisory model that that taught the algorithms to to you know, favor that type of thing. And mm -hmm. there came a point where it's like, oh, that's what it's doing. We need to start to back that out because that's, that's not having a positive impact on society at that point in time. Right? Because it, so a lot of, of a lot of the cases is, is that it's not accurate information. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's more that it can be abused really easily. And, yeah. you know, we, we've seen that. So that's, that's so, a real thing. So just like, are you, are you for, for time, you know, one of the things I want to cover is around the regulation side of things. Because I know for me, one of the biggest scary moments is, is the Cyber Resiliency Act. I was involved in the EUA Act and other regulations in the past, and one I've kind of stepped back from it is the Cyber Resiliency Act because it's a bit scary. Um, what's what's your yeah. thoughts around uh, that side of things? Because it has created a bit of a debate uh, in the industry in regards to its initial direction. Yeah, no, no, definitely. So, I mean, the the you know initial the initial response to that is that there's there's a lot of stuff in there that I think is really good and really important. And, mm -hmm. and the fact that there is, you know, kind of policy-driven uh, pressure in the direction of good things, I'm always in favour of that, right? Um, I think overall, you know, the, the, my kind of reads of the different versions of the CRA that are that are out there for comment at the moment, you know, it's all directionally pretty good. Um, yep. There's a couple of pieces in there that, that have been a bit concerning, um, you know, the 24-hour uh, the notification window on exploitive vulnerabilities, like that's if bad things happen on a Friday night, which is when they do tend to happen. Um, it's not so much that you want to write policy to, to make sure everyone keeps their weekends. I mean, that's nice to do, but you know, that's not the reason. I think it's logistically hard to do that well um, I, I think, in, in that shorter time frame, right? So I think it goes back to, you know, one of the things I've learned from it as well, it goes back to the lessons we talked about, you know, when I was involved in, in GDPR, is that mm -hmm. uh, not all vulnerabilities are equal. And, yeah. and that, this is the thing, is that, you know, it should be based on risk based on the impact, based on the scope. And it should be really kind of factoring that part in because not mm -hmm. all vulnerabilities are equal. So why, why would you try to, to do something to accelerate, you know, if it's something that's not, not urgent? Yeah, I do, I do think it, I mean, to, to, to the credit of the drafts that are out there right now, I do think like observed exploitation is a pretty good modifier that, that gets you from like a theoretical vulnerability into something where you've got a risk you can associate with it so so they that's that's sort of thing i do believe is actually in there i just think 24 hours is a bit too short it is um, yeah. i remember we, we talked about the, the the it was the 14 days in gpr you know was, was about the disclosure you know disclosure and then it went on to uh without undue delay yeah. is is kind of that that was the term it was used in gpr and i think that 
it, it should probably be go the same direction somewhere as well or possibly somewhere in the middle because undue delay becomes pretty exploitable. Yeah, it's the guideline. I think they still go by the 14 days, you know, right. kind of roughly depending on depending on that, you know, the, the risk itself. Um, and I know the FTC kind of and other, you know, in the US that kind of went the, the same kind of direction of, you know, bring it down to this like 48 hours or 72 hours and stuff like that. I think definitely, you know, that, that getting into real time vulnerability disclosures, <laughs> you know, you'd be having to work around the clock and, and it becomes a challenge. I think you well, know, sometimes you need time to, to evaluate what we are doing. We probably, we'd probably end up with a similar problem to what we have with SBOM right now too, right? Cause, cause the other side of it is that, you know, these, these reports, uh, I believe are meant to go to Anissa. Um, I think that's the right mm -hmm. agency. And, and, you know, the idea there is that that goes out for dissemination to member agencies and all those different things. That's another, um, aspect of it that I'm, Frankly, I can understand the intent of that, but I'm not super comfortable with it because if you're, it kind of violates one of the design rules of, of you know pre, pre patch you know vulnerability mm -hmm. information management, which is don't send it where it doesn't need to go, um, and, and do your best not to aggregate it into one place. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely some feedback that we've that we've provided around around that particular piece, mm -hmm. but yeah, those are two points that are like oh that could probably change and be better. You know, overall. I do, do, do want to bring this back to a positive. I think the fact that it's pushing in the directions that it's pushing, um, the fact that vulnerable disclosure is in there in the first place is, is awesome, for example. It's, I think it's fantastic. Uh, I think that the, yeah. the, the, the attention that vulnerability disclosures had in the last couple of years is amazing, especially yeah. when you get you know, Biden tweeting about exploits and vulnerabilities in a tweet. When he's yeah. using those words in the tweet, I think you know that just says a lot. <laughs> it is <laughs> it is pretty wild. It's really like wow. Yes, yeah, we've come a long way, which is good. Still, and again, been. still still a lot of work to do, but we've come we've come a really long way over the past. Casey, it's great. always amazing catching up with you, and your you know knowledge and you know expertise in this area is, is second to none. It's it's impressive, and you know having that. you really you know drive in this industry, uh, or you know didn't exist in the first place you know, until you came along and, and really seen that uh, this was an area of improvement and definitely an area that needed to 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 be really kind of uh, established as a proper platform. I think uh, this you know really changed the world, made it, made it a safer place. Um, any any closing thoughts? Or anything you want to leave the audience uh, before we close up? Oh, you, you got me a little emo with that, mate. I, I, I do appreciate <laughs> it. It's, it's it's very kind, and uh, I will call out. It's yeah. been it's been a cast of thousands. You know, honestly, over the years. So definitely, I'll, t I'll take credit for the bits of it that I've done, especially early on in the piece. But um, you know, I think the thing that's been phenomenal to watch is, is to see the, the, the body of people that are working on this kind of broader system level problem mm -hmm. expand, you know, going into yeah. the, the policy village at DEF CON um, and, and not knowing 80% you know, <laughs> of the people in the room. It's like, that is a good thing. Um, yeah. Because ultimately, you know, we're at a point where there's, there's younger generations. This, this would actually be my parting point around that. Um, you know, the younger generations that are coming in to this, they're the ones that are ultimately going to inherit this problem. And, and they're viewing aspects of it in a different way to, you know, us old farts at this point, right? I think I'm a bit, the, you know, with the, with the gray here, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> technologically, <laughs> old. we've all been working on these things for a long time. So we the, the idea of like what, what we know, I think, the, I think the mandate and the thing that's important for us at this point in time is to work out how to share the parts of the, the wisdom that we've built up over the years with, with folks that, that folks that are coming in so they can. They're really going to make the difference in the future. The ones are specifically yeah. going to take, yeah, it's the ones yeah. that are specifically and, taking and the parts where and continuing least, it. Yeah. We know where at least some of the tripping hazards are, so we can help with that part. But then also for them, like, you know, jumping in and actually putting your hand to the plow and figuring out mm -hmm. how you do it differently. Like take, take what we've done over the past 10 years and make it better. 
because it's not done. It'll it'll never yeah, be. Over. This is something that's going to continue. It's yeah. Yeah, and and we just need to make sure we have enough fuel and, and energy to keep keep going uh, and ultimately, you know, to, to get it where it becomes something that everyone can uh, have as as you know something that they they can benefit from. Absolutely, absolutely. So, thank you for the time, Joseph. It's, it's it. always impressive. It's, uh, thank you. Um, so, for the audience, Casey, um, amazing. You know, really kind of you know the foundation and, and uh, getting the the bug bounty and you know ultimately you know making sure that we we fix as much of the problems out there as possible. So, really kind of helping the world uh, become a safer place. So, again, this is the four one access to podcast, uh, bringing you know knowledge, information, you know trends and news to you. Um, ultimately, you know to make sure that you're as educated and knowledgeable as possible. And you know, give you areas of interest and maybe it's something, a, a, a path that you want to go down and, and, and learn more about. So, absolutely. Um, so, make sure, we'll, Casey, we'll make sure that the audience gets uh, ways to connect with you and find out more about Disclose.io. We'll put all of those in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, folks folks that want uh, want help connecting with hackers to, to make this stuff safer, bugcrowd.com. Um, you know, for folks that are looking to understand, implement policy mm-hmm. and, and just start there, Disclose.io. Uh, and, yeah, we'll put other links in the notes or have that conversation after. Yeah, we'll Fantastic. So everyone, you know, tune in for one access to my podcast. Uh, take care, stay safe and all the best. Thank you. Goodbye. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Delinea, the number one privileged access management solution for enterprises with complex hybrid IT environments. You can get our free ebook, Privileged Access Management for Dummies, by visiting us at delinea.com slash Pam for Dummies. That's delinea.com forward slash PAM, the number four dummies. From all of us at Delinea, thanks for listening.